Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Well, I've said this a few times at the beginning of this year, uh, that we really believe that this is a year that God is inviting us into deeper worship. Have you guys heard me say that? If you haven't, welcome to the vineyard. This is your first time. Um, We really do believe this is the year or a year for God to invite us into a deeper level of intimacy and worship. Uh, And and so I've said a number of times that we're going to dig into that, and I'm going to preach intentionally toward that. And so uh, unless, just so you're not afraid that I'm just going to preach about musical worship all the time, everything that we're doing this year is intentionally geared to give you a more fully orbed picture uh, of who God is and how he invites us into intimacy and worship. And so I promise you, today we're going to start this series called, 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 tongue twister. Um, and, And this is actually geared toward that. We just did this series, Change of Heart, uh, over the past four weeks, and this series is, is about calling. And so I want to just sort of uh, start out just to talk about this a little bit. One of the biggest decisions in anyone's life, like if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you think about the biggest decision in your life that you've ever made, it was a decision to receive God's salvation in Jesus, Right? nobody. Let me tell you all about Jesus. It's a different message. It's, it's the biggest decision of a life is to receive the salvation of God. And so one of the things that happens when you give your life to Jesus is your life gets turned upside down. You guys remember that? When you gave your life to Jesus, wasn't everything all of a sudden a mess? Like you inherited a family that you didn't know you wanted, right? Even the weird ones, The ones on TV, you know, all all the people, right? All of a sudden, you had this whole family of people who follow Jesus. And rhythms started to change. You had this book to look at. All of a sudden, there's the Bible. And you're like, I guess I'm doing this thing too. The values of your life changed, right? And maybe not all at once, but you started to value different things about life. And so everything was up in the air. And then on top of that... Anytime someone moves from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, right, Satan doesn't exactly like that. It's not like, well, that's okay. That one's gone, but I still have all these, right? There's a fight that happens. And so some of you, if you remember the time when you gave your life to Jesus, it was probably a time of a lot of turmoil, right? At, At some level, you felt some kind of spiritual battle going on. Like, it's like, well, I know I'm supposed to be free of anger, but I still find myself getting angry on occasion. I know I'm supposed to be free of this addiction or that addiction, but yet I struggle with it. And there's this battle that takes place, right? But at some point, we get to this place where things sort of smooth out a little bit, right? And now we're like, okay, I'm sort of a Christian now. I'm following Jesus. And the question that everybody has to wrestle with at that point, maybe before, is how do I live a life that pleases God? Right? How do I live a life in God's will? What is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? What is God inviting me to do? How do I live into this newfound life? Because I don't know about you, but 
This doesn't happen seven days a week. Even if you work for a church, this doesn't happen seven days a week. Do you know that? Just let you in on a little secret. Uh, Monday, we don't have worship services. Tuesday, there's no worship services. Wednesday, we don't do this every day of the week. And so there's a lot of time in your life as a follower of Jesus where the question becomes, what am I supposed to do? And I think if you Google it, you can find that that's one of the biggest questions of people who follow Jesus is what is God's will for my life? And so almost certainly, there are a lot of us who are wrestling with that question now. Just right here. I mean, just where you're sitting right now, there's almost certainly a lot of us who are wrestling with what does God want me to do with life? What is God's invitation on my life? How do I live a life that pleases God? And God chooses people for his purposes through this thing called calling. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're beginning this new series, and it's a glimpse into the early life of David, King David, uh, you know, the, the paramount king uh, of Israel in the Old Testament. But we're not going to look at the time when he's king. We're going to look at the very beginning of his life as he becomes king, or as he becomes anointed and called to be the king. And our hope is that we would begin to understand something of the way calling actually works, the way God actually calls us into our purpose in life. And today we're going to look at specifically the basic elements of how God calls David as the king and see if there's something we can't glean from this, this story. And so the, the message today I'm calling basic elements or the elements of calling. And so let's pray before we uh, turn to scripture. And so God, I do just welcome you into this place God, you have been active already, and Lord, I do pray that you would come in greater measure. Lord, that we've tasted and we've seen that you're good, and would you come in your fullness? Would you come now, Lord? God, I pray that you would empower me to speak your words. God, I pray that they would be life for the people who hear them. Fill me with your presence, God, and put power on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, it's in the Old Testament, and while you're turning there or flipping there, I'm going to give you a little bit of context of 1 Samuel. If you read 1 Samuel, we're going to go to 1 Samuel 16 as you're turning there. If you read 1 Samuel, what you'll find is the Israelites are in this constant battle with the Philistines, and some of you go, Philistines? Goliath, right? Yes, Goliath is a Philistine. So the, the Israelites are in this constant battle over and over and over against the Philistines from the beginning of 1 Samuel. And at the beginning of 1 Samuel, they're just not very good at fighting the Philistines. They lose on kind of a, a couple of occasions. And what they decide, the reason that they've decided that they've lost is because they don't have some big human king to lead them into battle. So we decide that we lose to the Philistines because we don't have a king. We don't have a king. And so the, the Israelites decide, I want a king. We, we want to have a king. We want to have somebody that looks like a king, who smells like a king, who acts like a king, right? We want to have somebody that we can see because God is not doing the job for us. And if you read 1 Samuel, you'll see from the beginning, uh, that's one of the tricks they try. They bring the Ark of the Covenant sort of as this sort of representation. See, we brought God with us and we still lost. Not only did they lose, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. You can read that story uh, yourself. It's kind of entertaining. It's the beginning. Um, so they ask for a king. 
The problem with this is that God was supposed to be their king. The way it was supposed to work in Israel is that God is the king. And so what, uh, what God tells Samuel the prophet is he says, well, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. Nevertheless, give them what they've asked for. And so Samuel goes about trying to find a, a king for Israel, and at God's direction, Samuel anoints Saul as king. And Saul doesn't last for very long. Saul's, but he's just the kind of guy you're looking for. He's like a tall, good-looking guy, you know, battle-tested. It's the guy you would want. And actually, when they announce, uh, anoint Saul as king, Saul's actually successful. Real early on, they beat the Philistines. It's like, see, we just needed a guy to lead us into battle. That's what we needed. But what we find early on is that Saul is not going to be the kind of king who's obedient to God. And so, real quick, God rejects Saul as the king. And that gets us to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. And here's what we read in 1 Samuel 16. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Samuel took it personally. Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the, leaders, or the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the other things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down till he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. We look at this, this story, and that's a lot of verses to read, but we look at this story, and what we see is this sort of sacrifice as Samuel goes to anoint who is going to be the new king. And so Samuel has this horn of oil to, to pour over the one that, that God elects as king. And whenever God tells him who the right person is, that's who Samuel's going to pour the oil on. So, so this is not, I mean, what we need to understand is that it's not the oil that's special. It's not the pouring of the oil that's special. What has actually happened is God has chosen this person. And the oil, much like baptism, where we say this is an outward sign of what has already happened with God internally, the oil is a confirmation. We pour this oil over uh, David 
as a confirmation of something God has already done. In fact, if you flip back a few chapters earlier, God has already told Samuel that he's anointed somebody else. He's already chosen someone else. So the oil is actually just an outward sign of what God has already done. But one of the things that we need to understand is calling is God's idea. Calling is God's idea. Look again at verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. God doesn't tell Samuel, go choose somebody. God says, I have chosen somebody. Calling is not man-made. It's God's idea. You know, one of the, the maybe powerful but like misused roles of a leader is to identify what God is doing in someone else and call it out and to bless it. It's, a, it's something that a leader is, is it, it's a delegated responsibility. And of course, it can be misused like many things that get entrusted to human beings, pressures amount, they, they mount around leaders all the time, right? Like all, everybody who's ever been a leader, you say, like, man, I've got this pressure and I've got that pressure. I need these people to do this thing. Or maybe I have pressure from, you know, expectations of someone else. And so the pressure mounts and the temptation is to misuse this thing that God has given us to do for our own benefit, and so we start telling people, oh, I think maybe God is calling you to do this thing. Or, you know, maybe we need volunteers. So God is calling, of course, God is calling all of you to kids ministry. You didn't know that? No. Right? But, like, we, we begin to use this idea of calling. We misuse it to alleviate the pressure that we fi- feel. And so what happens a lot of times is that people end up working into a calling that God has not put on their lives, but some leader put on their lives. And here's the problem when that happens. It's not just a misuse of power. It's wasted time. It's wasted life. It's wasted energy. All on something else. And, and it's wasted time that wasn't spent on the thing God has called us to. I'm sure that many of us have seen that. Or maybe we have, we have been in that, that position where we have been told that we were called to something that God was not calling us to. And it's a misuse of power. Listen, at the best... At our best, when leaders are at our best, we identify the people that God is doing something in and we pour oil on the heads of those that God is calling. We lend our anointing to bless the anointing of someone else. That's what we do at our best. We pour gasoline on the fire that God has lit. At our worst, leaders tend to use people for our own purposes, don't we? If you've been a leader for any amount of time, you know that pressure, where the pressure mounts, and here's a whole group of people. I really need people for this thing or that thing or the other thing. And we begin to use people until they burn out and they crash. And just as an aside, this is why it's so important, if you're a leader in any capacity at all, to constantly pursue more and more of your own healing wholeness. Because you just aren't aware of the depths to which you would go for your own brokenness and who you would use for your own brokenness. It's so critical to pursue your own healing and your own wholeness. And the fact of the matter is, as a leader, your leadership will be capped by the level of wholeness that you have. You won't be able to go any further. Don't be satisfied until the kingdom of God comes fully constantly pursue your own wholeness. 
But it's not just leaders that do this, is it? It's not just leaders. I've met so many people who are pursuing the calling that was put on them by their parents. So many people who are pursuing the calling that was put on them by their spouse. That grandma right before she died, the thing that she spoke to me, I'm going to live into this. The teacher that I had, the culture around me. And we find ourselves wasting our time and our energy on things that God did not call us to. It's not just leaders. But the only valid calling in your life comes from God. It's his idea. So calling is God's idea, and God chooses people differently than humans do. Look again at verse 6. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Samuel sees Eliab. It's like, all right, this is the guy. Why is this the guy? Well, he looks a lot like Saul. He's tall. He's good looking, right? Ladies, it's like the, the tall, you know, good looking guy opposite of me. Um, it's the guy that looks like he's battle tested and he can, he's rugged and he'll lead us into battle. And Samuel's like, this has to be the guy. He looks like Saul. He looks like the kind of guy that we would want as a king. And yet that's not what God says. He says this, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at, things, uh, at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When God calls someone, he does so based on the heart. Scholars don't necessarily agree about how old David was when he was called. It's anywhere between 10 and 20 years old. Somewhere in that range. Now, the reason this is significant is because David is so young, Jesse doesn't even think he could possibly be chosen as the king. If you, if you caught that, he's not even invited to the sacrifice. All the other brothers, the one that looks like a king, all these ones that look like they could be a king, are invited, but David is absent. And Samuel doesn't even seem to know that he's supposed to be there. They parade the seven that look like they could be king out in front of Samuel, and he gets to the end of seven and is like, well, God didn't say yes about any of these. Are you sure there's not another one somewhere? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 there is. But, you know, he's a teenager, and he's out there messing with the sheep, and, you know, we really kind of need him to do that because sheep are stupid, and if we don't, right? So, yeah, okay, we'll go get David, and we'll see what happens. And so David finally shows up, and everybody overlooked David and passed off on David except for God. And what's David's qualification? It's his heart. A couple chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 13, this is before David's ever mentioned. Samuel tells Saul that his rule is going to end. Here's what he says. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14 says, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. It's about the heart, that God looks at someone's heart before he issues calling. And there's something that actually this needs to be prefaced a little bit. It's a little bit, uh, there's a sense in which it doesn't make a whole lot of uh, sense for us to talk about what we're supposed to do before we talk about the first calling. That all of us are called into relationship with God. 
Every last one of us is invited into, into relationship with God. And let me just say, before we can talk about what it is you're supposed to do, we have to talk about who you're supposed to be. Being leads to doing. It's not the other way around. The other way around is religion. One way is relationship with God. Who you are results in what you do. Did I say that right? I'll make sure. The reason this is important is because calling comes out of intimacy with God. You're invited to relationship with God. You're invited out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to have relationship with God. And it's about intimacy with God. If you don't know this, you are probably somebody who is exhausted and does everything in church hoping God will love you. Hello? If you don't understand that what you do actually comes out of who you are, that you're supposed to be in constant communion and intimacy with God, all the best you can hope for is to do Christianity and hope that you can get God to love you by doing a whole bunch of things. And you'll be exhausted and you grow bitter and you grow weary. That's the best you can hope for. The first invitation, the first calling is to intimacy with God. And can I just say, if you're not, if you have not taken that step, I want to invite you to do that. That God desires you to be near to him, to be intimate with him. How many of you have a hard time with the first song that we sing? Anybody have a hard time with it? It's a fairly intimate song, isn't it? When I Lock Eyes With You. Nobody else. It's a very intimate song. This is yes. This is no. Anybody have trouble with that? Like, that's a level of intimacy that I think a lot of us don't think about when it comes to God. Like, think about what, what you're saying. When I lock eyes with you, I see my reflection. I mean, I don't even know how the whole rest of the song, come in like a fire, come in like a flood. I don't care what it looks like. Do you realize how much vulnerability and how open you make yourself to God in order to sing that song with authenticity? And this is the invitation. God invites you into this kind of intimacy. But it's from there that calling comes. We don't start with what I'm supposed to do. We start with who we're supposed to be. And maybe this is new information. Maybe the, the idea of intimacy with God is, is a new idea for you. Maybe it's a little off-putting to you to say intimacy with God. But let me try to like explain it in a different way that maybe makes more sense. Think about it like this. One of the regular pieces of advice, how many people are married in the last two years? Handful back there. Oh, come on. Yes. You put, there you go. There you go. I was there. <laughs> you, know, you know the counsel everybody gives newlyweds, right? They're like, continue to date your spouse. Have you heard that? Continue to date your spouse. How many of you think that sounds ridiculous? Everybody's like, this is a trick. He's probably the guy that said that. It's not a trick. If you think the purpose of dating someone is to convince them to marry you, dating your spouse sounds ridiculous. But the purpose of dating your spouse is to develop intimacy, that you actually spend time together. We mix up intimacy, right? We, like, we confuse intimacy with what happens in the bedroom, right? Are we all adults? I hope. At least 
Forgive me, okay? You can write me letters on that one. Um, We equate intimacy with that, but those two things are not the same thing. Intimacy is actually a heart-to-heart connection. That other stuff is a result, but intimacy is a heart-to-heart connection. You know, and so the idea of like, well, dating, why don't I date my spouse? I date my spouse because I want to continue to develop intimacy. I want to continue to, to, to know her. I want to continue to know her deeply. That's why I continue to date my spouse. And if you develop intimacy, the rest of the stuff takes care of itself. Because that's the product of deep intimacy, Right? But if all we're after is that and we miss the idea of intimacy, there's something wrong. And incidentally, I haven't tested this theory, but it's one I have. If you have a problem with intimacy with your spouse, you will probably have a problem with intimacy with God. If you can't figure out intimacy with God, those two things translate. Intimacy with God and intimacy with a spouse, they work the same way. I continue to intentionally take time, I invest time, I, pr- I, I press into relationship with my spouse for the sake of intimacy, and I do the same with God. Listen, salvation is free. It's a free gift. God invites you into relationship with himself. All you have to do is receive it. But intimacy takes effort. It takes effort. Nobody's marriage relationship flourishes by just sort of like passively floating through marriage. It takes effort. And if you've been married a long time, I know there are some of you who have been married a really long time. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. You have to actually do it to have intimacy. The same is true for God. And here's the thing. Intimacy with God is where calling comes from. If you pursue intimacy with God, what results is all the other stuff. It's calling. It's all the fruit of the Spirit. That's what happens in intimacy with God, but you have to pursue it. It's intentionality. It takes investment. And here's the other thing. When he issues calling, the most impactful callings come from really deep intimacy with God. The most impactful things. Right? Don't we all want to have like, don't most of us want want to have this really like impactful thing? I really want to do something for God. If you've been doing this for a long time, you're like, I really want to, I really want my life to count. And I want my life to make an impact for God, right? Don't we want that? And if we don't, we'll talk about that in the future. But don't we want that? And if that's what you want, it comes from intimacy with God. It comes from deep intimacy with God. And here's the deal. You can't fake that. You just can't. Because here's what happens if you fake it. The word of God never returns void, right? Have you heard that line? So we want a microphone to stand up here and preach to everybody else, but I don't have intimacy with God. Guess what's going to happen? If I stand up here and I never pursue intimacy with God, but I preach the message, guess guess what's going to happen? Every last one of you is going to have the word of God do something in your life because it never returns void. And I stand up here like a fraud. And the shame eats me alive. If I'm not eating what I'm serving, if I'm not dining on the feast that I've prepared, it will kill me from the inside out. If you want to do something impactful for God, it comes from intimacy. Let me just take it a different step. If you lead worship, 
and you don't have intimacy with God, guess what happens? Everyone else who, who has intimacy with God, with God will worship, won't they? They'll connect. They'll magnify the Lord. They'll worship God. Meanwhile, you will die inside because you're a fraud. And inside, the shame will build, and eventually, you'll crumble from the inside out. That's what happens. If you wa- just watch people, watch the Christian community. I don't know if you guys have paid attention to this. Christian leaders who will preach the word every week, who will lead worship in the biggest of arenas in every week, and then they come out and they're like, I don't even know who God is anymore, and I'm not sure I believe. They crumble from the inside out. If it doesn't come from intimacy, it will kill you. And I say this with all love and compassion. I want every last one of you to do something impactful for God, but I want it to be birthed out of the intimacy that you have with God. And I think that's what God wants. Because he sees your heart, and that's where it all comes from. Because the fact of the matter is, God isn't looking for people who want to pursue and accomplish their own dreams and goals. God wants people who want to pursue his dreams and his goals, who want to live in obedience to his vision for the way the world ought to be. And the reality is that change of heart, because I don't naturally want that, right? Don't I naturally want my own platform and look at me, right? That's what you naturally want. The only way that change of heart happens is in intimacy. Have I beat this horse to death yet? I'm serious. Because if we're going to be the kind of people who worship God the way I think he deserves to be worshipped, it's going to have to come out of intimacy. We actually need to be the kind of people who could sing that first song authentically. And I think we're getting there. I think that's where we're headed. I think that's the invitation of the Lord, that we would be people who could genuinely, from the depths of our heart, sing that song any time of the week, and it would be an authentic representation of of the intimacy that we have with God. Don't you want that? Don't you want that kind of relationship with God? I want to show you one more thing, and then I'm going I'm to end with this. And the third thing I want to show you is there's often a gap between calling and implementation. Look at verse 13 again. It says, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David's like a teenager, right? And the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he's called to be the king, and yet the Bible tells us that he's 30 by the time he's actually the king. I mean, think about that for a minute. If he was 13, let's say, that means he was anointed and called to be king over Israel empowered by the Spirit of God for that task and now has to wait 17 years to actually live into that. I mean, think about that for a minute. And it even gets a little bit more twisted. In his life, he knows he's called, he's empowered to do this thing in his life, and guess who he then has to serve? The very guy he's replacing. Have you ever been in that space where you have been called by God and you've been empowered by God to do a certain thing, whether it's uh, lead worship or preach or teach or whatever, and you have to sit under somebody that every day you find yourself going, I would do it differently. I wouldn't do it like that. They're making a mess of this. And if you read through Saul for the rest of his life, he just, I mean, all he does is try to kill David. 
The whole time, he just gets agitated and tries to kill David over and over and over and over and over again. For 17 years, give or take a few. Can you imagine the way this feels, the way this works? And it's not an isolated case. It's not like, well, David had to wait, but everybody in the Bible who does something significant has to wait. The Spirit of God, just think about Jesus, just for a minute. The Son of God, right? God in the flesh comes to earth. He goes, he gets baptized. The Spirit of God comes down on him like a dove. And where does he go? Right into ministry? No, into the desert. So that he can starve for 40 days and do battle with Satan. There's a waiting period always. And in our culture, that sort of like rubs us the wrong way a little bit, doesn't it? We're like, what do you mean? I got the Spirit of God. I've got calling. That's all I need. I need calling in the Spirit of God. That's it. That's all I need, right? Wrong. The gap between calling, empowerment, and fulfillment is what Frank Damasio calls preparation. And I would recommend his book, Frank Damasio's book, The Making of a Leader. If you haven't read it, it's a great book. But he calls it preparation. This is the season where you get the education, you get the training, you get the testing that you're going to need to do the thing God has called you to do. And all through Scripture, it seems non-negotiable. Every leader that God calls goes through a time. Think about Paul. Paul gives his life to Jesus. It's dramatic. He's going to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles, and then he disappears for 10 years. Where did he go? He went to go work out his theology and go through, I mean, it's not like he just was empowered by the Spirit, and off you go, and the rest of the things all work out great. But in our culture, we don't like that, do we? We sort of think, well, you know, I got calling, I got empowering of the Spirit, which that's all I'll need, and I just rush right out the door, which turns out Scripture doesn't even really support that. But, you know, that's what we say. I've got calling, I'm, I'm empowered by the Spirit, I'm just going to go do the thing, and then we're shocked when it doesn't work. We're shocked whenever marriages fall apart. We're shocked when our kids go off the rails, and we're like, what happened? We ignored this thing of preparation. Turns out when you get the Spirit of God, one of the first steps is he leads you into preparation. That's actually one of the most essential pieces, and yet we don't take it seriously. And all I can say is that if you don't learn the things that you learn in this period of preparation, you're, you can never be a great leader. Because the things that you learn in those spaces is how to be humble, how to be a servant, how to be under authority. And I want to touch on just two of those, and then I'll close. The first one that you need to learn is how to be a servant. One of the dangers that's present in being a leader is that you begin to believe that people exist to serve you, right? We begin to believe that the people around us, when I'm a leader, they exist to serve me. But the biblical picture of a leader is the one who serves the most. But the definition of a leader in the Bible is the one who serves the most. I mean, think about it. We're following Jesus, and Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. And so the best we can hope for is to be one who serves, just like our master Jesus, right? So to be a leader, to move up in the kingdom, actually is to move down. Like, 
That's what it is to be a leader. It's not that people serve us. It's that we serve more and more people. If you want to be a bigger and a greater leader, serve more people. If your desire is to lead more and more people, the way that happens is you serve more people. When I'm looking for people who can be leaders, what I'm often looking for is two things. I'm looking for someone who is constantly generous with their time, energy, and money. Because leadership is just giving yourself away all the time, every day, to everyone around you. That's leadership. And so if you're not generous with your time, energy, and money, you probably don't qualify. The other thing that I'm looking for all the time is people who will care for everyone around them, who care deeply. And sort of the negative that I'm also paying attention to is how quickly do you want a microphone? I'm going to brag on a couple of people. There's lots of leaders in this church who who serve faithfully and who care for people deeply. I want to highlight two people. And for the rest of you, I love you. I'll talk about you another time in a better way. How many of you know Danny? For those of you who don't know Danny, you don't see Danny almost ever. I can't even see him because the light's in in my eyes. But he's up there behind the soundboard. This guy shows up early every time. He stays late every time. He's never once asked me for a microphone to talk in front of people. He's never once even told me, hey, I'm called to be a leader. But you know what? Danny is a leader. How many of you know Abby Kephart? If you don't, you should know her and volunteer for Parents Night Out. (laughs) She shows up all the time. She gives time that she doesn't have to give. She does a whole lot of work in the background that nobody ever sees so that we can invest in kids because we believe an investment in a kid makes more of a difference in the kingdom than it does making an investment in an adult. And she shows up. She has never once asked me, can I have a microphone? She's generous with her time, her energy, and her money. You guys know Jeff. Jeff's the same way. Jeff shows up. He gives of his time, gives of his energy, gives of his money. He's a generous person. He cares for everybody around him. You can't be with Jeff without knowing that he cares about you, or at least he's going to pick on you, and that's how I know. (laughs) He has a microphone, but never asked for it. These are the kind of people that God calls to be leaders. Do you show up early? Do you give of yourself generously? Do you take the first coffee cup, or do you wait till all the other people get their coffee cups? Do you take the close parking spots, or do you park far away so that those people who are guests can? What's your posture? Do you serve? That's what it is to be a leader, is constantly serving. It's constantly giving of yourself. So you need to be a servant, and the last thing I'll say is, I think I've said that three times. It's that 
in the time of preparation, you learn to be one under authority. And it's related to serving, but it's a little bit different. See, here's the thing. One of the thoughts that's prevalent among leaders is, when I'm in charge, I'll do it my way, right? I get to do it my way when I'm in charge. But the reality is, as a follower of Jesus, we always just do it his way. We're always under the authority of Jesus. Everything we do is for his purpose. When we were in Columbus before we moved here to plant this church, we uh, had a small group, and we led this small group. The small group was bigger than the church, than this church for a number of years. But we were under the small group's pastor. We were under the senior pastor. And these were people who had the right to say to us, don't do that. Do this. And we learned in this time of preparation to respond to authority. The reason that's critical is we moved here to plant a church. And I do have overseers over me. But I'm basically in charge and can do whatever I want. If I have not learned authority, I'm just a tyrant. You have to learn to be under authority so that whenever there's not somebody sitting there watching how you do everything, you still know how to be under the authority of Christ. These, and the good news for you is both of these things are things you can practice now. You can be a servant now. You can be a generous person now. You can practice being under authority now because here's the reality. As a follower of Jesus, God has a purpose for every one of you. As you press into intimacy with Jesus, he will issue callings. And don't you want to be the kind of person who's prepared to respond faithfully? Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.